Let us open our Bibles to Romans chapter 4. Thank you, Brother Stephen, for reading to us from Numbers chapter 25, the first 13 verses, and from Psalm 106, verses 28 through 31, about our brother Phinehas and his zeal for the Lord, and how that zeal for the Lord was counted unto him for righteousness. The identical language used by the Holy Spirit of God in his description of Abraham's faith. Thank you, Brother Ed, for your prayer. Romans chapter 4, let me read the first three verses. What shall we say then that Abraham our father, as pertaining to the flesh, hath found? For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. For what saith the Scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Amen and amen. Amen. Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. I want to repeat myself enough today and explain this little sentence enough times and hopefully plainly enough that you'll never forget it and you'll not be confused when you enter Romans chapter 4 and you think that it sounds Arminian because of the way that the apostle has to write to oppose Jewish legalism when in fact there's nothing Arminian about it at all. It is the death knell to Arminianism and Calvinism. And we want to cover that today. As we look at Romans chapter 4, the first three verses show that Abraham, the greatest Jew, the father of the Israelite nation, was declared righteous on the grounds of faith only as the evidence. No works of the law, no circumcision, no knowledge of Moses. In verses 4 through 8, justification and righteousness have to be by faith so that God will not be put in a condition of debt and that grace will not be corrupted. In verses 9 through 12, God declared Abraham a justified man on the basis of faith before he was ever circumcised. This is the apostle's argument. In verses 13 through 15, God declared Abraham a righteous and justified man before the law and without the law. On the, mer- on the basis of his faith. Verse 16 tells us, and it's a summary verse, that justification and righteousness is of faith. It's by a system of faith. It's where faith is the evidence. No condition of Moses' law, no condition of circumcision. It's of faith that it might be by grace. To the end, the promise might be sure to all the seed. Not only to those that grew up in Israel under the law, but to those Gentiles that would grow up without the law, they had as much access to claim and to have assurance of justification and righteousness as any man. Verses 17 through 22 describes Abraham's faith and of what sort it is and what kind of faith we ought to have. Verses 23 through 25 tell us that Genesis 15:6 was not written for us just to know about Abraham, But that verse was written to encourage us that if we have faith in the God who sent His Son, Jesus Christ, we have the same evidence that Abraham had by believing the promise that his seed would be as multitudinous 
as the stars of heaven. And there we have Romans chapter 4. It deals with Abraham from beginning to end. And it is brilliant wisdom by the Holy Spirit to do this. Paul is opposing Jewish legalists throughout these early chapters of the epistle. It was the greatest enemy of his gospel in the New Testament. And that is Jews who would not totally cast away the things of Moses' law, but wanted to involve them and include them along with the finished work of Jesus Christ for the justification of men. They wanted to require circumcision of Gentiles that were brought into the churches. They wanted to require keeping Moses' law. The Sabbath, feast days, and other aspects of Moses' law. Paul had to fight them in so many epistles, and he's doing that in this epistle. He has laid down the fact in the first chapter that all Gentiles are condemned. Then in chapters 2 and the first half of 3, he shows that the Jews are likewise condemned, and that in fact they're more condemned than the Gentiles because the Scriptures were written to them and leave them without hope. That the law was never given to justify any of them. The law was given to show them their sinfulness. And to shut their mouths and to leave them guilty before God. Paul has explained that already. Then, in the second half of that third chapter, he explained how men are justified. Whether Jews or Gentiles, there's no difference. They're all on a level with each other. And they're justified by God's grace given to us freely through the redemptive work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is unto and upon all them that believe. It's not based on the works of the law. So he draws a conclusion in the 28th verse by saying, Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Faith is the evidence that God has already made a man righteous without any deeds of the law. He doesn't need to be circumcised. He doesn't need to keep Moses' ceremonial law. If he believes in the God of heaven and his son Jesus Christ, which is the message of the gospel, then that's the evidence that he's a justified and righteous man. This subject of justification has tormented the churches of Christ for 2,000 years as there has been so much confusion created by heretics and false teachers. The church of Rome wants to make it sacramental. They don't even understand the concept of justification. Their explanation and definition of justification is to be infused with grace. Justification doesn't have anything to do with infusion. Justification has everything to do with a legal acquittal and a declaration of righteousness and freedom from guilt and condemnation. The Arminian comes along and makes faith the condition that separates a person from the rest of humanity, that takes him from a state of condemnation to a state of justification, that takes him from a state of death to a state of life, that is the necessary condition for his regeneration. The Arminian makes faith his good work. And to an Arminian, which Paul had never met, but we have met, their faith is a work. And we shall get to that. We shall prove that. Because it is something they glory in. And it is something that puts God in their debt. It is something that takes away from the glory of God. And it is the deciding factor between them and others. It becomes a work to them. Verses 4 and 5 of this chapter. Which we will probably not get to today. Because I want to take 
a wonderful phrase that God has given us and understand it and rejoice in it. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. I want you to love that statement. And I'm going to tell you right now where I'm going. And I want to tell you right now what my bottom line is going to be in a few minutes. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. If you haven't believed before today, believe today. If you've believed before today, believe more today. The Apostle John would write in 1 John 5.13, These things have we written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. That's what I want to exhort you to today. Let's be like Abraham, but let's start out with that seminal verse that's given in the Bible about his justification. And it's in 15.6. And we're going to go there and I'm going to say 15.6 over and over. Because you should know that Abraham is dealt with in the Bible from chapter 12, actually the last few verses of 11, to 24. Actually, the first few verses of 25. But he's dealt with from Genesis 12 to 24. But there's one little statement made in chapter 15 that is pulled into the New Testament over and over. And it's on that that we are going to rest our doctrine. Because our doctrine fits with what is described about Abraham. The Calvinists come along and say, God has a predestinated people, but he's also predestinated to bring them all to faith because faith is a necessary instrument of their justification. We deny. Faith is not a necessary instrument or means of justification. Faith is the evidence of justification, and it's pitiful evidence of that, because without works, faith is dead and nothing more than what the devils have. And this is the whole Bible put together in a nutshell. God gives justification by His free grace to the people that He elected and chose in Christ before the world began, and predestinated them to eternal glory. Jesus Christ paid the legal purchase price for their justification by suffering the full curse of the law Himself and by securing the righteousness of God by keeping the law in its positive aspects and its negative perfectly, and that is applied to us. So that justification is to us just as if I had never sinned because Jesus paid for every sin, and just as if I had lived in perfect righteousness, because Jesus did that for me, and it's applied to my account by His finished work on the cross, so that the Bible can say, He hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. And who are the sanctified ones? The ones set apart by God's electing, predestinating purpose in Christ Jesus that was given us before the world began. Our faith is simply the first step in evidence so that we have a written record that we are saved. It is the first step in our evidence to make our calling and election sure. But we want to add a whole lot of things to it. But there's one thing we want to do for sure today, and it's why we're assembled. We are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And on the grounds of that evidence, which has been counted to us for righteousness, we are justified and righteous in the sight of God. By His grace, through Christ's death, applied by the Holy Spirit, evidenced by our faith. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. Not a thing changed in Abraham, and not a thing changed in heaven, in Genesis 15, 6. And if i got to say this ten times, 
I'm going to say it ten times. I want to tell you something right now that most of you do not appreciate. Our doctrine of justification cuts through all the doctrines of justification in the world and turns them into nonsense in comparison. Ours is very different. Ours is not Calvinistic. Ours is not Arminian. Ours is not sacramental. Ours is not Roman. Ours is not mystical. It's very easy to understand. Belief in God of the sort that's going to be described in Romans chapter 4, verses 17 through 22, is a dividing character trait between the righteous and the wicked. Our belief is only evidence. It is not a condition. It is not an instrument. It is not a means. It is not a way. It is evidence. God counts faith and belief in Him as the evidence. He counted it as a sign that Abraham was a righteous man. Even though Abraham was a righteous man before Adam was created. He was a righteous man in the predestinating purpose of God, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began, which included his foreknowledge, predestination, calling, justification, and glorification. In the purpose of God, Abraham's glorification was finished before Adam was created. This is what we believe. And Calvinists can call us antinomians all they want. They don't know what the term means, and they've never met us, and they've never heard the gospel that we preach. An antinomian is someone who believes that you can be saved and live any old way you want. But the Bible teaches us the only way you can make your calling and election sure is to start with faith and to add on that an edifice of good works. And that is laying up a good foundation against the time to come. Listen, those verses are powerful. I'll tell you, one of my favorite sermons I've preached to you is Salvation by Works, in which we took every soundbite in the Bible that has works associated with eternal life, and we use them like the Arminians use every soundbite that connects faith with eternal life. If they want to take those sound bites, we at least want to deal fairly with the Word of God and pull up all the ones that teach us that good works are associated with eternal life. Because there's more of them than they have about faith. Because faith is nothing more than the devils have unless it's backed up with works which are built upon it. The Holy Spirit blessed our brother Paul by inspiration. He sat down and he began penning this epistle to the Romans. And he worked his way through these chapters, and so have we, through the third chapter. When he gets to the fourth chapter, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he takes the greatest Jew and applies the doctrine that he's already taught to see if it fits what the Bible says about Abraham. And it fits like a hand in a glove. It fits perfectly. And this is the greatest Jew. This is the father of the Israelites. This is the father of the faithful. This is the friend of God. And Paul used them. The Jews obsessed about their relationship to Abraham, as you can see in many places in the Bible. And so Paul took their favorite man and said, how was Abraham saved? And so we have these three verses. What shall we say then that Abraham our father, as pertaining to the flesh, hath found? What shall we say then? having established universal guilt and condemnation, 
having taught that justification and the righteousness of God is secured by Jesus Christ and freely given by God's grace, having established that, and that faith is the evidence, and that therefore we conclude that a man cannot be justified by the works of the law, what shall we say then? Let's proceed further to the next argument. Let's proceed based on that ground to see how Abraham was saved. And so he uses a question here, asking his audience and provoking them rhetorically to think along with him, how was Abraham saved? Abraham in his flesh, in his physical existence, what did he accomplish? I do not understand the little non-restrictive phrase there as pertaining to the flesh to modify the word father, but to modify the word found. They already knew that he was their father according to the flesh. Asking that question would have been nonsensical. But there's another aspect of flesh that's already been introduced in the epistle. And that other aspect of flesh is mentioned in verses 28 and 29 of chapter 2. And that is what is outward. What did Abraham outwardly accomplish? And the apostle is going to tip himself off that this is his intent by the second verse. Because in the second verse he immediately goes to the fact of a subjunctive, hypothetical possibility. If Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. So the apostle is pointing out, what did Abraham, in his physical existence, outwardly, in his flesh, accomplish in his life? What did he do? If it was works, which can't be possible... It would give him occasion to glory, and God doesn't allow glorying. He's already taught that in chapter 3 and verse 27, remember? Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. Boasting is excluded from God's plan of salvation. God has so arranged the salvation of his elect that there will be no boasting involved. So when we come to verse 2... The subjunctive mood of that verse is asking a hypothetical or possible situation. If Abraham were justified by works, he wasn't. But if he were, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God, because God doesn't allow men to glory before him. I said all of that to show you, as pertaining to the flesh, is applied to the word found. What did Abraham find in his flesh? What did Abraham accomplish in his flesh that would have led him to his state of justification and righteousness? Remember, it's already been introduced. So now let me read to you 28 and 29 of chapter 2. He is not a Jew which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. What did Abraham accomplish outwardly in his flesh? And if if you want to look very closely at this first verse, there is a hint of the circumcision that is coming in verse 9. Because it is outward in his flesh. And the main argument of chapter 4 is that Abraham was justified by faith, not by circumcision. Because Paul is going to repeat this point over and over in the fourth chapter. Where is circumcision done? Is it done in the spirit or is it done in the flesh? The circumcision that the Jews prided themselves so much in. It's in the flesh. 
circumcision has already been introduced in the last five verses of chapter 2. It's going to take up again in verse 9, and it's going to take up with these words. Cometh this blessedness then upon the circumcision only or upon the uncircumcision also? Paul is drawing the conclusion of something that he's introduced in the first verse, and that is, what did Abraham accomplish in his flesh? What happened in his lifetime, outwardly done, that brought about God's declaration of him being righteous and his justification? Why is heaven called Abraham's bosom? What shall we say then, based on all that I've taught you, including about the flesh, including about circumcision, what shall we say then that Abraham, our father, found? Outwardly, in the flesh. What should we say? What brilliance. The Jews took so much confidence in Abraham. When John the Baptist began baptizing, he saw immediately. He knew their problem. He knew their obsession. He knew their trust and their confidence. Think not within yourselves that you have Abraham as your father. Matthew chapter 3. We can barely get into the New Testament. It was true in the Old Testament as well. You can read about it in some of the prophets warning them not to put confidence in Abraham being their father. God is able of these stones to raise up children to Abraham. In Romans chapter 9, Paul will say, because their children of Abraham does not make them God's promised seed. For Abraham had more sons than one. He had more sons than two. He had eight. But only one was the promised seed. The children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, Romans chapter 9. The children of the promise are counted for the seed. Paul had to deal with this throughout. Jesus dealt with it. John the Baptist dealt with it. Paul dealt with it because the Jews obsessed about their relationship to Abraham. The Bible will teach us that we are born again, not of blood. Why does that even have to be in the Bible? Does anyone think that the second birth is directly related in the consequence of the first birth of our ancestors? The Jews did think that way. They claimed Abraham as their father in John chapter 8. And Jesus said, if Abraham were your father, you wouldn't be trying to kill me. Abraham never did anything like that. I love the approach. All of chapter 4 will be to show these Jewish legalists that the greatest Jew was not justified by the works of the law. He was not justified by their circumcision. He was justified by the faith as evidence that he Paul preached everywhere. That God's grace and Christ's redemptive work is unto and upon all them that believe. Because believing is the first of many evidences that we ought to bring forth to lay up a sure foundation against the time to come and to make our calling and election sure because the Bible says, if ye do these things, ye shall never fall. That is how salvation is taught in the Bible. We, who put the greatest emphasis on the predestinating purpose of God and the the finished purchased price of redemption through Jesus Christ, also have the greatest motivation to good works with the power of God to perform them. Because without good works, we do not have the evidence of eternal life. What did Abraham find? What did Abraham obtain from God relating to justification and righteousness by his physical obedience or physical privileges? Paul's asking Jewish legalists, our father, 
Now, it's going to take a few verses, but Paul's going to explain that Abraham is your father and my father, as well as the father of the Jews, because he's the father of all those that believe, whether they're of the law, Jews, or whether they're not of the law, Gentiles. But he's not saying that yet. He hasn't taught that yet. He is going after Jews in the first verse by saying, what shall we say then that Abraham, our father? He is still working the Jews over as he has been from the first verse of chapter 2. Verse 2 of chapter 4. For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. It can't be God's plan of salvation if Abraham was justified by works, because if a man is justified by works, then he has occasion to glory before God, and God does not allow any glorying in his presence. Because the Bible says that no flesh should glory in his presence. But let him that glorieth, glory in the Lord. First Corinthians chapter 1, the last five verses, the last five or six verses of that chapter. Abraham had many works. He left Ur of the Chaldeans. That was a work. God said to do something. He just didn't believe. He left. He left Haran after his father died and went on into the land of Canaan without his dad. He built altars. He worshipped God. He defeated four kings. He paid tithes to Melchizedek. He was circumcised. He was a great father, even God taking notice of the fact. He prayed for Lot's family. He buried Sarah in hope. He offered Isaac on an altar. And he sought Rebekah, a God-fearing woman, for Isaac. The man was full of good works. If Abraham were justified by works... He hath whereof to glory. If any of those had, had, had been the meritorious cause, that means that there was merit in them, that they earned God's favor, that they secured and procured God's favor, if they were works in the sense of the law, that do this and you'll live, then Abraham would have occasion to glory. But God doesn't allow glorying. Therefore, Abraham wasn't justified by his works. It's that simple. Verse 2 is reasoning. What shall we say then about Abraham, your father, you Jewish legalists? What did he discover and find in his life? How did he obtain God's favor in his life? Was it by works? If it was by works, then he has reason to glory before God, but God doesn't allow glorying, therefore it's not by works. For what saith the Scripture? And this is the way we we always ought to appeal to Scripture. What saith the Scripture? In all questions, and all controversies, we want to take everything back to what the Bible has to say. It's the only final authority. It'll save you from all the confused philosophizing of theologians, whether Roman, Arminian, or Calvinist. We want to follow the Word of God, and we want Paul to be our theologian. We want Paul to teach us what there is to know about God and justification. God's plan of justification is by free grace. Grace is demerited favor. You have merited God's judgment and condemnation. Grace is not only putting you back in a neutral state. Grace is taking you all the way to a favored state of being the Son of God. Grace. It's wonderful. So many call it unmerited favor. But it's not just that we have not merited God's favor, we have merited His judgment. And for Him to show us His favor, it's demerited favor. It's God's grace, purchased by the Lord Jesus Christ, who did all the work for us on the cross, 
And we claim it by faith as far as our own assurance in the matter. But faith is only an evidence. And not a thing changes in heaven. God has already purposed our end glorification so thoroughly that it can be described as past tense in Romans 8.30 because the purpose with God's power is done. In that sense, we're eternally justified. We were chosen in Christ that we should be holy and without blame. That's a justified man. There's nothing to lay to his charge. And when was that given to us? In Christ Jesus before the world began. God's purpose and grace was given to us before the world began. 2 Timothy 1.9, Ephesians 1.4. This is what we believe. And we come now to the third verse. There is no way that God's plan, God's system of justification is going to allow Abraham any room for glorying. And so Paul just rules out that Abraham was justified by works. The man did have works. Now James is going to say that he was justified by works. And James is going to list one of those particular works. Paul in Romans deals with our legal justification. When we say legal, what do we mean? We mean in the sight of God. In the judgment of God as he views righteousness and wickedness. Legality is in the court of heaven. Legality is at the bar of God's judgment. Legality is what we're going to need in the day when we stand at the judgment seat of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're talking about a purchase price having been paid to satisfy God's holy and righteous nature. The legality of our position was purchased by the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul deals with the legal position first. James is dealing with the practical justification. That Abraham was justified by works by showing that he was a righteous man. Paul in Romans opposes Jewish legalists. James in his epistle opposes carnal professors. If you read the book of James, it's all about men who are playing around with the world. Chapter 1, receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. Chapter 2, if you have faith without works, your faith is dead and no more than a devil's faith. Chapter 3, watch your tongues and quit speaking with the wisdom that is from beneath. Chapter 4, you adulteresses and adulterers, you adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship with the world is enmity with God? That whole epistle is against carnal professors. If there's an epistle that we can say addresses Arminians, it's James. Because they put all their stock into a decision that they made for Jesus. And James said, your decision for, can faith save him? Can your Arminian faith save you? Is it any evidence of salvation? No and no. Because faith without works is dead. That's James. So there's a difference. When, Rome, when Paul in Romans says that Abraham couldn't be justified by works, he's speaking of that, of Abraham's works having any legal or meritorious value in the sight of God as a judge. James is simply saying, Abraham was justified by works in that his works proved his faith to be sincere and real, which were the evidence of eternal life. We have a doctrine of justification that ought to cause you to rejoice. Not only for the fact that we're saved by pure and free grace, but that the Lord has given us an understanding of it to cut through the fog of all the sola fide, sola fide, sola works, buddy. Amen. 
Sola fide, faith only, faith only, faith only. Listen, faith only? James said faith only is evidence of nothing. You say, well, why didn't Paul say it that way? Because Paul was dealing with Jewish legalists, and if he'd have pulled the word works in, he'd have got his message confused, and he would have diluted the power of his point, because the power of his point is in chapter 15 of Genesis, and the power of James's point is in the 22nd chapter of Genesis, and James binds the two together and says 22 fulfills 15. God made a written declaration that a man who sincerely believes... And Abraham's faith is going to be described in graphic detail in verses 17 through 22. A man who believes is declared righteous in writing by God. But for greater evidence for the assurance of our own hearts and to assure others and to please God, we add works on that foundation of faith and then we are justified by works in that it shows our faith to be sincere, real, and productive and fruit-bearing. Paul deals with the initial evidence of justification. James with the proof of the initial evidence of justification. Paul deals with justification before God. James deals with evidence before men. Get the two epistles in their proper places. We are to rightly divide the word of truth. Paul says Abraham was not justified by works. James says Abraham was justified by works. They are talking about two different aspects of justification. You will not earn your way to heaven by your faith or your works. But there's no evidence of your salvation without faith and works. Both are necessary for the evidence of salvation. For what saith the Scripture? In all questions and controversies, let's go to the Word of God. A child of God with the Word of God need not fear any man. In Job chapter 32, Elihu said, You are all older than I am. And I've listened to your speeches now for 31 chapters. But there is a spirit in man, and the Almighty giveth him understanding. You know where God gave us our understanding? Right here in the printed pages, including the ones Elihu wrote in the book of Job. Don't you ever be afraid. Rather than arguing from reason like he did in verse 2, now he's going to call the scriptures forward. You Jews, what did Abraham our father in his flesh accomplish? What did he do outwardly that brought about God's righteousness in his life? What brought about his justification that Abraham did in his life? The first reason Paul said nothing is because the second verse would allow Abraham to glory before God, and God will not allow glorying, therefore Abraham was not justified by works. Second reason. What does your own scriptures say about Abraham? And this is what I love, and I want you to love. What saith the scriptures? You Jews, didn't, isn't it amazing that preachers had the most problem with those who knew the scriptures the best? Because though they knew the scriptures the best in the letter, they did not understand the scriptures in the sense of those scriptures. For those of you men that were with me on Wednesday evening for our fourth lesson in hermeneutics, I like to open with that particular slide that shows the eight references in the Gospel of Matthew alone where Jesus said, Will ye learn what the Scriptures say? Have ye never read? I'm not being redundant. Have ye never read? Have ye never read? Have ye never read? 
Have ye never read? Why did Jesus have to say that so many times to the Jewish religious leadership? Because they had read without understanding. And so Paul's going to do the same thing. Why would anyone think that you had to be saved by Moses' law or circumcision when there is a plain statement made about Abraham before both of them? Paul brings it up right now. Verse 3, For what saith the Scripture? Praise God for being able to go back to the Bible. The Holy Spirit moved Moses to write Genesis 15.6 as surely as he moved Paul to write Romans 4.3, quoting Genesis 15.6. I want you to be excited about that. And do you know why God moved Moses to write Genesis 15.6? For you this morning. Can I prove it with the Bible? Chapter 4, verse 23. Look at it. Romans 4.23. Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him. Do you need help with the verse? Genesis 15.6 was not just written about Abraham's case. Verse 24. But for us also, it was written for you, to whom it shall be imputed, if we believe on Him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. Righteousness is declared to be in us, upon us, around us, and we stand legally righteous before God when we believe the record that God's given of His Son, Jesus Christ. And Genesis 15.6 was not just given about Abraham, but it was given about us. And it tells us that right there in verse 23 of chapter 4. Now it was not written for his sake alone, that it was imputed to him, but for us also. If we believe, like Abraham believed, God is going to count our faith for righteousness just like he did in the case of Abraham. So we want to learn that case as thoroughly as we possibly can. If We don't want to listen to testimonies of men about how they were saved. They may be confused and not saved at all. They may be heretics and saved but not knowing how they were saved. We want to listen to what the Bible says is the example of salvation. Abraham. For what saith the Scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. Abraham believed God. Let's flip back there to find it. Genesis chapter 15. Have I said that yet? Genesis 15? I told you I'm going to say it at least ten times, and I'll probably get more out. I don't think any of you... I don't want to say it that way. Most of you do not fully appreciate the value of Romans 4... In its death knell to Arminianism and its encouragement to us about the true doctrine of justification. It takes us back to Abraham and we can look at Abraham and we can learn things about this role that faith has. That's what we struggle with that we're raised in Arminian circles. What role does faith have? Faith is an evidence only. It is not a condition It is not an instrument. It is not a means. It doesn't change a thing in heaven. It doesn't change our legal standing. It is an evidence. It just brings to bear verses of Scripture that tell us that if we believe, we are saved. Not we get saved if we believe, but if we believe, we are saved. 
Abraham believed and it was counted to him for righteousness. And we're going we're gonna to milk those words before you get to go home today. Genesis 15.6. is, But we don't want to start there. Let me read the six verses, and I've read them to you, I think, as recently as last Sunday. After these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision. After what things? After all his good works of chapter 14. After the priest of the Most High God blessed Abram. After these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. And Abram said, Lord God, what wilt thou give me, seeing I go childless, and the steward of my house is this Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, Behold, to me thou hast given no seed, and lo, one born in my house is mine heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This shall not be thine heir. But he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven and tell the stars, if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. And he believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. That is justification in the sense of when do we know Abraham was a justified man? His justification was finished in the purpose of God before Adam was created. His justification was paid for by the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary, who by one offering, I'm repeating myself times two, Hebrews 9, I mean 10, 10 through 15, who by one offering hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. But how do we know that Abraham personally was a righteous man with his sins paid for by Christ and that God had elected him to justification and glorification before the world began? When he believed. How do we know that that's when we're supposed, how we're supposed to understand it? Because that's what the verse says. Abraham believed in the Lord and it was counted to him for righteousness. And we are going to get on that word count, but not right at this second. There are four synonyms in the New Testament. Count, reckon, account, and impute. And they all mean the very same thing. They are synonyms. Impute does not mean to infuse. Just because it starts with an I, don't get too excited. Igloo starts with an I. But it has nothing to do with infusion. It amazes me what people do with the poor little word impute. To impute to someone is to reckon, count, or account them as such and such. I want you to just love this verse. Abraham believed God. It is such a staggering event for a man to believe God, especially when he makes an improbable or impossible promise. And when a man believes it in the way that Abraham believed it, it is counted to him for righteousness. This is the very same language that was used of Phinehas in Psalm 106 and verse 31. Phinehas executed God's righteous judgment. In his zeal, he took his javelin and put two fornicators out of their misery or out of their pleasure. 
the pleasures of sin for that season were short. And it was counted to him for righteousness. It didn't make him righteous. It wasn't added up on the scale of good works so that eventually Phinehas would get to heaven because one more thing was counted on the good side. Don't think about count that way. We're going to get to count. I just want to think about what it doesn't mean for a moment. Abraham believed God. He believed in the Lord. And it was counted to him. He counted it to him for righteousness. God viewed faith as the evidence of a righteous man and wrote it down so that Paul could bring it forward so that the Jewish legalists would understand that Abraham was declared righteous by God on the grounds of his faith as the evidence he was a righteous man. Paul brought it forward for that purpose, but Paul told us in verse 23 that it was also written for you and me. If you believe on God that promised eternal life before the world began, and there's not a thing you can do to earn it, but that it was all secured and purchased by the Lord Jesus Christ, that faith is counted to you as the evidence that you have the righteousness of God upon you. Because without the righteousness of God, you wouldn't even have that faith. Because we have obtained like precious faith through the righteousness of our Lord Jesus Christ. Righteousness comes first. 2 Peter 1.1 Then faith comes out. And so that faith is the evidence of what came first. We're made righteous. Then we believe. And the belief is counted to us as the sign, the evidence, the proof that we're righteous. Oh, the Arminian. Poor Abraham. You know what Abraham was in verse 5 of chapter 15? He was dead, he was dead in trespasses and sins. He was on his way to hell. The book of life in the A's and the A-B's had no Abraham. <laughs> the poor man. But along came God and told him about Jesus. And Abraham heard about Jesus. And he got so excited that he believed it. In verse 6, his old man welled up with joy. His flesh got so excited at hearing about the spiritual truth of Jesus. And so his dead old nature, his flesh, invited Jesus into his flesh. And he was born again. And his name was written down in glory. And the angels burst forth with that song, there's a new name written down in glory. Not. That is disgusting. That is disgusting. Abraham had believed in God for years, maybe decades, before we get to Genesis 15. He was blessed of God already. The promises were already sure to him. There wasn't a thing that changed in heaven or on earth with Abraham believing, except this. There was a verse written that said, Abraham believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. That's all that changed. And do you know why that was written there? Not because anything changed in heaven, because Abraham was just as righteous before 15.6 as he was afterwards. Do you know why it was written there? Abraham was already a justified man. Abraham was eternally justified. Abraham in the faith of God would be justified by the cross of Christ. Why was it written? We're told why it was written. So that Paul could use it against Jewish legalists. And so that Jonathan Crosby could use it for Gentile, former Arminians, 
who love the Lord Jesus Christ and are thankful for God's predestinating purpose that was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. That the role of faith is evidence for justification and righteousness. That when we believe, the Bible tells us in writing that that is a sign, that is an evidence. You are a righteous man. You are justified. You'll go to heaven when you die. That is why the Bible says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. It doesn't mean believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll get born again. You have to be born again in order to be able to believe. But if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, in the great day of judgment, God's going to declare you righteous on the grounds of the evidence that you've already shown, but all from the free grace of God through the redemptive purchase of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the gospel that the Bible teaches from cover to cover. Abraham believed God and he, that is the Lord, counted it to him for righteousness. He didn't say, Abraham, your faith is so good, I'm going to make you a righteous man. You are able to muster so much faith in your unrighteous condition that I'm going to make you righteous. There is none of that whatsoever. He counted it to him for righteousness, just like Phinehas. Are we going to say that Phinehas was standing there with the sobbing prayer warriors before the... I'm making fun of them in this particular occasion. Sometimes prayer is not what you need to do. Phinehas stood there with the sobbing prayer warriors before the tabernacle of the congregation in Numbers chapter 25 in a totally unrighteous state, dead in trespasses and sins, on his way to hell. And when you looked in the pHs of the book of life, there was no Phinehas to be found. But in his old nature, following the course of this world, Subject to principalities and powers, the spirit that works in the children of disobedience, he mustered that spirit, grabbed a javelin, ran into the tent, and thrusting his javelin down through two souls, he was born again in a flash of blinding light that came down from heaven and lit up the whole congregation. And he was saved that day. Because it says in Psalm 106.31, it was counted to him for righteousness forever. No, he wasn't saved that day. He showed he was a saved man that day. By the, by the reaction he had to sin, he wasn't going to stand there and sob and pray. He feared for the glory of God. He loved the glory of God. He said, this ain't happening under my watch. And he grabbed a javelin and went and did something. And God said, that is a sign that that man was a righteous man for everyone that reads the Bible for the next 3,000 years to know about this is a man that has my approval for what he's done, and that what he did was an evidence of his righteousness. It was counted to him for righteousness to all generations. And so we today love Phinehas by virtue of the righteousness that he showed in that act. He wasn't made righteous that day. It was righteousness that caused him to do what he did. God just acknowledged his righteousness as evidenced by his use of the javelin. Moabite shish kebab. Israelite Moabite shish kebab. He could have put a tomato on top and added vegetables. Bless his glorious name. He's no comparison to God, but he is too, he's a wonderful man. Jail in the Bible is blessed above women. Mary is blessed among women. And Phinehas is certainly blessed among men. Because of what he did by faith. He stopped the plague of God. 24,000 men died. 24,000 died while Phinehas was on his way to the tent. 
But he stopped it right there because God loved that kind of zeal. And he counted it to him for righteousness. Romans chapter 4, for what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. Abraham's faith didn't make him righteous. Abraham's faith didn't get him born again. Abraham's faith was evidence. And on that evidence, we are to build a foundation of good works, of further evidence, so that we might make our calling and election sure. We don't get called and elected by our faith or the works that we add to it. Election comes long before our faith. When God looked down to see if there were any that did understand and did seek God and did believe and did fear Him, He found none. So He elected us anyway out of pure grace, paid for by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and His perfect life. By believing that gospel record of the promise of eternal life and by living accordingly, it's counted to us for righteousness. It's the evidence of righteousness. We do not get saved by our faith. The Arminian believes in their believing rather than in Christ. And if they try to believe in Christ, I'll correct them because their Christ lost most of those for whom he died. Their God lost most of those that he loved. Their spirit couldn't move most of those that he worked on. So the deciding difference was their faith. An Arminian puts his faith in his faith. That's why they love to write down the date. And you ask them, when were you saved? There's only one date that ever enters their mind. They never think of the cross of Calvary. Why? For obvious reasons. Jesus didn't save anybody at the cross. He only made it possible. They never say before the foundation of the world because they don't even know that's taught in the Bible. They've rejected it long ago. They don't say when I was born again with the power of the Holy Spirit because that's not that meaningful to them because they're the one that brought it about by inviting Jesus into their heart. When you ask an Arminian, when were you saved? They will come up with a date when they did something. How were you saved? I believe the gospel that was brought to me by whatever means. Well, then, are you your Savior? Oh, no. Jesus saves. Jesus saves. Well, who did Jesus save? Well, not anybody, really. Brethren, we have been blessed abundantly. Do you know what we're going to do with this doctrine? We're going to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to go out and live for Him. And we're going to put works together based on that, that, know, that, we, that show we know Him and that we reflect Him. And therefore, if any man be in Christ, and that is speaking practically in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. We don't get rid of old things and take up new things in order to be in Christ. We do it because we're in Christ. And we're in Christ because we've chosen to be in Christ practically. But the only reason we've chosen to be in Christ practically is because God chose us in Christ before the world began. We were in Christ on the cross, and the Holy Spirit puts Christ in us by regeneration so that we have a new man, because it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of His good pleasure. We don't will and do of His good pleasure in order to have Him in us. He's worked that in us, and it's our job to work it out. And may the Lord bless you right now and me right now to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. Not to earn it, but to show it. That we might be blameless and harmless. The sons of God, predestinated and purposed to be such from before the world began, but now let's show it by our lives. 
that we are the sons of God in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom we shine as lights in the world. Amen.